Hello and welcome to this episode of Shaw's Communicable Research Podcast. My name is Andy Tatsell and I work at the Sheffield Centre for Health and Related Research, which is part of the School of Medicine and Population Health at the University of Sheffield. And over this series of podcasts, we'll hear from researchers at Shaw alongside some of their collaborators and the work they undertake to tackle some of the world's biggest health challenges. If you want to know more about Shaw, then you can find us on the web at the University of Sheffield. We're also on Twitter at Shaw Sheffield, so please feel free to follow us for updates there. You can also follow us on various podcast platforms that you may wish to subscribe to. So without further ado, let's get on with the latest episode. Hello and welcome to this special bonus edition of the Shah Communicable Research Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Tattersall, and today I'm joined by a trio of experts from Shah to discuss the NHS at 75 and what potentially lies ahead for the organisation in the next 25 years as it goes towards its 100th birthday in 2048, especially in relation to healthcare services and the research that supports it. In this podcast, we will discuss the NHS's priorities for the coming decades and the challenges it faces, those being a changing demographic, the legacy of COVID, an ever-changing technological landscape and the impact on its workforce. I'm joined by three academics at Shaw who all have strong links to the NHS in their roles as a mental health nurse researcher who has previously worked in the NHS frontline services, an emergency care doctor and a GP. So I'll ask my guests to introduce themselves. Steve Goodacre, Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Sheffield. Hello, I'm Chris Burton. I'm Professor of Primary Medical Care at the University of Sheffield. Hi, my name's Emily Wood. I'm a Senior Lecturer at the University of Sheffield. Thanks a lot for joining me today. And I want to start off by, first of all, we're, we're talking about the NHS, 75 years old and the next 25 years. But no one can successfully predict the future of this very large organisation beyond the next year or two, especially with an election on the horizon. But aside from that, what do you see as being the big themes it will address in the next two decades? So I think one of the things it has to keep doing is doing what it's always done, and that providing that continuity of care for diagnosing severe illness, managing common conditions, and increasingly following things up and looking after long-term conditions is all going to stay on the main playing field for the foreseeable future. And so the first challenge is just keeping going, doing that, as it becomes ever more complicated and ever more complex. I think there's a few things beyond that. There is currently a very welcome trend within NHS thinking to address issues of equity, recognising that There are multiple effects of disadvantage on people's health and on their access to care. And the NHS is currently using initiatives to to try and address that, and they're very welcome. I think there are challenges about the introduction of new technology. And perhaps linking those first two points, there's the challenge of providing services for the people that technology leaves behind. Thanks, because I agree with that. I think, as well, on top of that, we need to be thinking more about patients with multimorbidities so that's multiple health conditions at the same time traditionally the nhs has thought about people having one condition so they'll treat somebody's diabetes but then the person treating the diabetes isn't thinking about the fact that they also have depression or they also have a heart condition or all of those things increasingly patients have more than one condition and we really need better joined up treatment i think I'm maybe a little bit more pessimistic than Chris or Emily. I think the big problem the NHS is going to struggle with is demographic. We have a larger and increasing population of older people who require healthcare and social care and a decreasing proportion of younger people who will deliver that health and social care. And the NHS's big challenge is how does it manage that situation? And that is already becoming an issue that the NHS has to deal with, particularly in terms of workforce. There's huge challenges in workforce. And if it's not managed carefully, it can become a, a vicious cycle in which the pressures on the existing workforce increase. If nothing's done to mitigate those pressures, then it becomes a less attractive job. More people burn out, drop out, or just don't want to go into health and social care. And the imbalance between demand and ability to deliver health care becomes worse. 
So the NHS Assembly, they published a report, the NHS at 75, Priorities for the Future, which you've kind of touched on. In this report, they talked about three shifts, those being preventing ill health, personalisation and participation, and coordinated care closer to home. So that first priority refers to shifting funding to evidence-based measures to prevent and manage such as coronary heart diseases and other causes of poor health, such as smoking and obesity. This is something that Shaw, as a research centre, is very versed in. What more can be done as researchers, because you are all researchers, to, to help get that latest evidence from publication to practice? Because often, and I've found this from my own experience, that I'm telling a practitioner what the actual information is because they are not often aware of that. So what can be done about that? It has to be relevant, and it has to be meaningful and salient to the practitioner. And so again, I'd perhaps just re-emphasise the theme, the theme of the, the pressure the NHS is under and the challenge of delivering healthcare, that we have increasingly practitioners are going to be delivering healthcare in increasingly difficult situations, increasingly under time pressure and uh, with demand outstripping supply. And so the findings of research have to be relevant to that. And increasingly, this is I mean, working in emergency care. If you're going to undertake research, it's got to be research that is deliverable and is relevant to a situation where everyone is rushed off their feet and no one's got time to do anything. Um, if you come with an intervention saying, well, this will require an extra training course for you to do um, in your um, unlimited amount of training time that you have, and it will require an extra hour to deliver it to each patient, then everyone's just going to laugh at you. So it's got to be relevant. And increasingly, I think we need to have research that addresses the pressure that staff are under um, and doesn't estimate, underestimate that and works around that pressure. Emily, you've done work in this area. So what can be done to help the current situation within a research context? You know, we know there's political issues here and there's other factors sometimes that are outside of control. Pandemic comes along, etc. What can be done? Yeah, so a lot of my research recently has been in retention, uh, specifically within mental health services, but I have done some workforce research in other areas as well. And I think Steve's right, you know, the huge pressures at the moment when it comes to communicating the findings of your research specifically and how we do that for an overpressured workforce, I think keeping things concise and salient, a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few months has been taking the very, very long research report that got written about this research and condensing it into a couple of sides for specific groups so there's a briefing report for the cqc there's a briefing report for nhs england there's going to be another one for nhs employers they all need to know subtly different things and they need to know them at the right time so but i think it's really important to have the time to write those which is something that we don't always have as researchers when particularly some of the staff who are on short-term contracts have to move on to another project don't always have that time to be able to follow up and say, well, I've written the publication, but now I need to write seven or eight different briefing reports for different audiences to make sure that this gets into the right place at the right time and actually has the impact that it should have. It's potentially impactful research, but only if people get a chance to read it, only if people get a chance to find out what we've said. So I think, yeah, having that time to be able to disseminate the right nuggets to the right person at the right time is really important. So I think you both touch on something which is really important, which is the difference between research for an individual practitioner on what they should do and research that changes policy. And I think historically we've tended to favour the first and as a professional I kind of like to think that I'm being treated as a sentient recipient of research evidence and I can make decisions from it but actually practitioners are being drowned in information as well as drowned in workload and if you've got no operating space to change what you do then giving you something else that would be a good thing to do is pointless so our challenge as researchers is to demonstrate not just that things are effective or not effective to practitioners but to demonstrate that in a way that there is a much stronger case for changing policy, whether that's a sort of national strategic policy or, to, or 
an operating policy of a healthcare delivery organisation. And I think sometimes interventions do require extra time for some people. If that can be demonstrated to be cost effective, then there's a case for freeing up blocks of that, even by shedding something that may be rapid turnover and less effective in the long run. So I think it's it's that shift to thinking, how do we translate evidence from research into stuff that changes the way things are done, rather than just changing what practitioners know or think. And I would imagine that's trickier to achieve with such as GPs and paediatricians and emergency care doctors who are dealing with a, a wide-ranging group of, of people and a wide-ranging conditions compared to the specialists who perhaps can be a bit more focused when they're trying to actually stay abreast of new research. Is that case? So, I mean, you won't get GPs squabbling over the interpretation of the latest clinical trial results for of drug X in heart failure in the way that you might with a bunch of cardiologists. But you will get GPs disagreeing about what's the most efficient or effective way of dealing with a group of people with a particular problem. So it's thinking, you know, what's easy to define as a research study in in a sort of simple clinical trial compared to how you do a research study that evaluates a much more complex intervention uh, that may require structural changes around it in order for it to work. But if those are in place... It does work. Yeah, I think emergency physicians and GPs, we see different kinds of problems. And maybe we see it rather more from the patient perspective than the specialist does. Now, that may get me into trouble with specialists, but I don't care. Because specialists will see people who have already been through the system, by and large. They will have been identified and selected as people who are suitable for that specialty. That's why we have specialists, and they're great at their job, and they do really great work with their specialist-selected patients. But, of course, they have to come through that process, and it's people like myself and Chris who select them through that process and start with the patient at the point at which they have a symptom and they go and see a healthcare practitioner about that symptom, and they want to know what to do. And that's something that I I think there's increasing awareness about and increasingly res- increasing respect for that part of the process, that if you want to know about how to diagnose a heart problem, you don't necessarily ask a cardiologist. You maybe ask a GP or an emergency physician because they're the ones who do the diagnosis. The NHS has had a history of being a bit behind in terms of technology adoption. They've got a bit more up to speed, but this is still quite an important thing in terms of knowledge sharing and knowledge mobilization that technology really does underpin that you've got to have the frameworks in place for people to share things in a way they can access it and the nhs hasn't always done that very well has it it hasn't but is that a bad thing there's an awful lot of duff technology out there and letting someone else have a go and find out that it's duff is uh not always a bad idea i must admit that's I I know you're frowning at me, Andy, because you have a different approach to technology, but that's my view. I I wait until everyone else has found out the problem. Perhaps the technology infrastructure. So, like, the NHS has had, like, this one approach to information, that all information is sensitive to an extent, which meant that led to inertia. So everything... In the university, we we have access to anything that we want, and, in effect, we can get any kind of software if we can go through some due diligence. Whereas in the NHS, it was very much a case of if you wanted to access that PDF or that blog, the NHS site blocked it, and that blog could be a very informative information source. I think that's that's not so much a question of inertia for me. That's, first of all, quite appropriate recognition that if you're dealing with patient details, you need to protect them. And maybe an element of risk aversion and overestimating the risks to confidentiality and not recognising the benefits of greater access. Rather than, I think that being suspicious of technology is a different issue. Now, the NHS faced its biggest challenge in its 75-year history with COVID in 2020. And that obviously had a major impact on the areas where you work and where your research is focused in primary and emergency care, the well-being of not only patients but NHS staff. And this led to a deluge of research outputs relating to COVID. And I remember seeing a a visualisation of this showing year on year where research had been done and, and changed over the years and COVID suddenly came and broke all the records. 
So whilst some of that body of work may assist in preparing us for another pandemic, does it come at a cost to other areas of impactful research, such as diabetes and heart disease research? All research comes at the cost of other research because we don't have enough money to do all of the research that we want to do on the different health conditions. So I think there's a question of how we decide what is the priority, where should we be researching. Um, pandemics don't come across along very often, so you do need to make most of researching as much information as you can out of that when it happens. Hopefully we won't get another one for a while, so that might have been the last chance, hopefully. But what what is the most important thing that we should be researching? That's a very difficult question to answer. It's probably more about personal choice than anything else. Mental health is the leading cause of disability in the UK, gets a fraction of funding that a lot of other subjects get. Didn't make your list as to you know what perhaps we should be researching. So it all comes down to our personal preferences. I personally think the COVID research some of that's going to be hugely useful, some of it probably not. I think more should have moved quicker into long COVID research. That's where the long-term disability is, is going to be, and that's the long-term challenge for the healthcare system. But then I've had long COVID for 18 months, so I probably have a conflict of interest in that point. So you, how do we decide what is most important? Yeah, I, I agree with Emily. And uh there was a lot of COVID research. It was a bit like a wave, sort of swept through and has now gone and went quite quickly. Was disruptive, probably in a good way, but probably not as disruptive as we thought it was going to be. It has changed some perspectives, possibly in a good way. So, for example, the use of platform trials, I think, is now much more accepted as being a good way of doing trials, and that is changing in the in the trials community. And from my own personal research, it certainly made me rethink the value of clinical prediction um, in a way that I and made me question the value of it and uh, question some of my perceptions about it in a way that I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't got the opportunity to do that research. So overall, I think it's been. It's obviously not good for the planet but or people, but it was good for research, has now gone and we can get back to the priorities that we agree. Yeah, I'd agree in that it has pushed us to do things differently where common sense kind of said we should have made that move five or ten years ago, um, but we wouldn't because nobody had made it. There was a sort of, we can't be the first to do it differently because. And so, for instance... During the pandemic, we were conducting a trial of a clinical intervention that was set up face-to-face. Halfway through the study, that was not going to be possible. So we converted it to um, an online video conferencing clinical intervention, which appears to have worked more or less the same. We would never have designed two trials. We would have ended up, if we'd finished three years ago, we'd have ended up with a trial for something that was now no longer relevant to the healthcare landscape. So I think smart research tries as hard as possible to be agile when the situation changes. It's being able to change as much as possible around it. Um, I think there are other things that came out of the enormous wave of energy and enthusiasm and commitment that happened in COVID research around recruitment to clinical trials through general practice, increasing access to trial interventions outside of specialist centres because people needed to run trials quickly and suddenly things that normally take many years took six months. So there were not exactly, well, absolutely undesirable circumstances, but necessity led to a number of innovations and some of them are, are sort of staying with us, I think. I think, in, and in terms of does a two-year pause on research on some of these other conditions matter in the long run? These are part of a 40-year-plus trajectory so far that shows no sign of stopping. So in the big picture, I don't think that we've been sort of set back massively. That innovation, which has come as a result of something that we didn't want to happen has been beneficial to the research field and obviously ultimately to to healthcare and to well-being in society. 
I'm not sure it's a benefit. If you if you were asking me to do a cost benefit trade off, no. <laughs> but if you're saying were there unexpected benefits or unexpected things, yes. And actually, if we think about the example of long COVID, then while Emily reasonably enough would like to see more research into it, there has been more into persistent symptoms and fatigue after acute infection since COVID than there had been in the 30 years before that in relation to hemichronic fatigue syndrome, for instance, which may or may not be very similar to long COVID. So COVID has had a huge impact on the, on the world and AI is going to have a huge impact on the world. We don't know how much, how positive, how negative, but it's going to play a bigger part in the healthcare system and the research that directs it. So what gains do you see being made and also, what threats does it pose to the NHS? And I know that's a very tricky one because it's still very early days and it's quickly emerging. But as, as a researcher and as someone with healthcare experience, what, what, you, what are your particular thoughts? Where's your gut feeling, if anything? I'm not sure it is early days. One of my first research papers in the late 90s was on computer-generated ECG interpretation and looking at how they how accurate they were and how they're used. A significant part of my job at the moment still involves ECGs being put in front of my nose with a computer report on them, but I have to decide actually what the interpretation of the ECG is because people don't trust the computer-generated report. And perhaps more saliently, people wouldn't like to be treated for a heart attack that had been diagnosed by a computer rather than diagnosed by a healthcare professional. So I am sceptical about this massive change. I also think the crucial thing with AI is that we need to understand it. What's it telling us? If we regard it as some sort of witchcraft that's going to give us the diagnosis, even though it's too complicated for us to work it out for ourselves, then we could make a real mess of things. I can understand how AI would be very helpful for interpreting images, so interpreting scans, x-rays, and I can see how that would be very useful, particularly in interpreting normal x-rays and scans so that the human bit of the, the radiologist and all of us who have to interpret them who gets bored and misses things because we just keep on seeing normal investigations i can see how a computer could lighten the load there in other respects though a computer making a diagnosis with the same information that a patient has given to me i'd like to know how the computer does that what is its trick so i can understand what it's telling me and how it's doing something better than i could do otherwise there is a risk that we take the algorithm as being um, some sort of holy grail, and actually it's just telling us nonsense. Yeah, I think this this issue about black what people call black box AI is is a real challenge. You know, by which I mean there is an algorithm that the computer has effectively written itself and not told us about. Um, this is not a computer following rules that somebody's given it based on their experience and knowledge, this is a computer working out for itself uh, what it thinks is right or wrong. There's, that's an important issue in terms of trust for professionals and patients. It's also going to be a really important issue when test cases start coming along about misdiagnosis. I read earlier this week about a test case in relation to an AI-informed car autopilot system where the car crashed. And there is debate about whether that was a failure of the autopilot system or a failure of the driver. Those things are going to come into healthcare at some point. And, And actually, just on that, this, you know, it's about what gets adopted by policy. Those are the sort of things that are going to really define where the limits of AI are in relation to diagnosis. Tech industries often do that kind of, you know, it's okay when you're developing stuff to fail early and fail often. When you're trying to deliver healthcare, that's absolutely not what you want. We need kind of, you know, for the last 20 years, we've been thinking about patient safety and how we can make that more and more aligned with the way that the aviation industry does Um, air passenger safety the aviation industry does not generally 
with one or two exceptions, perhaps um, hand stuff over to black box AI and say, yeah, it's cheaper this way. I can imagine one of the issues here is that you are authorities. When you work in a clinical role and as an academic, you are authoritative people. Scientists, doctors have a very, very high trust rating in the UK, you know, compared to like journalists and politicians. AI delivers results as an authority. So when you ask it something, it sends back a very confident reply. It can hallucinate information. It can hallucinate references. So as you were saying, Steve, this is the problem that we, as with Google, we became reliant that Google was a, a great source of information, that it gave us the best results, when actually we need to actually dissect those results. They're not always the best result. Patients and even academics sometimes can be a bit over-reliant on a service because they deem it to be authoritative. So that that is a potential threat, I would imagine, as a clinician and as a researcher, that we become a little too comfortable that AI is giving us the answers when perhaps it doesn't know in its, in its desire to make us happy because that's the process, isn't it? It has to give us a result to an answer even though it doesn't know. This is not unique to AI as well. I mean, we have been have you know, we have decades of experience of conventional statistics giving us algorithms that will allow us to predict diagnoses and prognoses, and doctors and nurses adopting them and not really understanding them and using them inappropriately. So we know that can happen. I, I don't, and I think it, it risks getting worse with AI. But equally, there is the opportunity to actually step back and say, well, hang on, what is this actually telling us? Um, we know what nonsense AI can tell us when we go online and when we see that it, you know, um, we've just been shopping for new jackets and we've just bought a new jacket and then immediately it starts bombarding us with adverts for something we've just bought. And we can realise how stupid AI can be in the real world. Well, this is the opportunity to, to realise how stupid computers can be in healthcare as well. Yeah, a colleague, a colleague repeatedly reminds me that computers are not computers do not do smart things; they do stupid things very fast. And actually, as long as we remember that, I mean, I, I think you know we probably both agreed that that as, as a way of screening, the more kind of clearly discreet you can make a task, look at this X-ray and look at it for. A, B, C and D and tell me that these are not present, then when you can feed AI hundreds of thousands of examples and be reasonably confident that the human who coded it first knows the result, the AI can learn. And, and I think the successes so far with AI have been on things like image recognition from scans and x-rays or from photographs to the back of an eye to look for retinal changes and diabetes and things. And I think for those kind of clearly demarcated tasks, it will add something and we will see it more and more. I think the challenge is when it starts to, when we try to use it in situations that are not clear cut or thinking about what Emily said about multiple long-term conditions in the space where often there's a guideline and a policy for this condition and a guideline for a, and a policy for another condition, but actually, as a practitioner, we're working in the space between those. And, and that, at the moment, humans have got that ability to put themselves into the awkward spaces and think about those spaces, knowing what they are, and think about what matters in making decisions in those spaces. And I think, you know, as we look at the complexity of the care we provide increasing i think that ai might sort of catch up the tail a bit but at the same time the front line is getting more and more complex and is not going to be amenable straight off to ai solutions as with any computer program ai requires good quality information and we don't always have that a lot of healthcare is that personal relationship and being able to elicit information from somebody who may not realise that what they have is a symptom that is really salient. So if you just ask them to just do a tick box and put it in a computer in some way, they might not have realised that they need to say this because they don't realise it's important. Whereas 
as a human being, when you have those interactions, you know, you can sit there seeing somebody rubbing their head. They haven't mentioned headaches yet, but you can say to them, well, you know, are you okay? You're rubbing your head. Do you have a headache? And you can pick up on those nonverbal cues in a way that I don't see how, and I don't know much about computers, so I appreciate AI may be okay with this, and I just don't know, but I don't see how it can do that. I don't see how it can replace that human connection. And I think that's vitally important in health services. Areas we've, we've discussed early, earlier and something that we do research in is obviously NHS workforce and the issues relating to that have become very much to the fore in the last three years, particularly because of COVID and staff burnout, etc. So AI is offered as this solution, this kind of this helper, this sorcerer's apprentice that's going to ease our lives, but it's also a threat to jobs. What do the panel think about this in terms of the NHS staff and, and AI in terms of is this going to ease that burden or for some is it is it a threat that's going to add to that anxiety they've been feeling for the last few years? I am not worried personally. Um, I mean, I've already told you that 20 years ago we did research on computer-generated ECGs and still 20 years later I'm being asked to interpret ECGs. So two points. First of all, I think the best of, you can have the best of both worlds. Why don't you have AI and a human? I mean, that's what I'm doing when I'm interpreting those computer reports. The computer will pick up stuff that I might have missed if I didn't look carefully enough. Equally, I can look at what the computer's interpreted and use experience to say, well, no, actually, I don't think that is what the computer... It is a heart attack or anything like that. So, yeah, you can have the best of both worlds. I think there is also a risk that AI actually increases the workload. That AI... First of all, to actually run the AI algorithms, you have to input the data and the humans have to collect the data. As you're saying, Emily, about, you know, what is the patient saying? What are they doing? You have to tap that all in before you can actually get your estimate. And then if the estimate doesn't make sense, you then have to interpret it and then you have to explain it to the patient. Are people really going to be satisfied? You know, if they go into clutching their chest, they end up at hospital worrying they've had a heart attack and then they're told by a receptionist, well, the computer says you haven't had a heart attack, you can go home. Really? Would you be happy with a computer telling you that you don't have cancer when that's you're worried about? You're going to want a human to explain it to you, aren't you? And if that is working on demand that's being generated by the algorithm, by people being able to access the technology and get estimates of probabilities of having diseases that they know are worried about, that's actually going to generate more work for the NHS. And I'd imagine a lot of people that you'll see coming into clinics and um, into A&E We'll have conditions that they think may be a heart attack, etc. And it's just sometimes it's reassurance that it's a bit of stress or indigestion. And again, the human is essential, isn't it? Hearing that information, that's a, an essential. It really is. And I think the way that it's not a heart attack, it's, an, it's a panic attack, is delivered, <laughs> is hugely important to the patient. You know, the, I've, I've been having chest pain for ages. I've been to A&E and... I got fobbed off versus I got reassured. The fine line between those is the way that that diagnosis is delivered by the person who you are seeing and how that relationship, is what I was talking about before, about relationships and that human interaction. A well-delivered clinical verdict done sensitively, compassionately, is, gives great patient care. Computer says no, really doesn't. And I think that's going to be a huge issue. Yeah, to follow up on what Steve said about workload, mostly I agree. I think staff are currently reporting being so overworked that if AI can help, then I don't think anyone will mind that at all. I suspect there will be a huge amount of suspicion about how it can help, whether it can help, and a lot of worry that actually it's just going to cause more problems the NHS doesn't have the best record of implementing complex IT projects. And so I suspect staff will be more worried, but not that it will be taking jobs, but that it's actually going to create more work than it's going to help them with. So Chris, as a GP, you get people coming into your surgery who may have read things on the internet. They may not know how to critically appraise information. They may not know what's an authoritative source. 
they may have got things off of off of various kind of forums etc and and i imagine as, as a gp you will try and inform them with the, where they perhaps should look and the information they should should look at how 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 they access that uh you know pointing them to the nhs website and, and other authoritative sources ai is going to throw a bit of a a, a spanner in the works in terms of information literacy. It's going to get a lot easier to generate fake information, you know, anti-vax, anti-vax information, uh, misleading COVID information, all kinds of things where people have got their agendas or, or, or just being mischievous. How important will it be to have that continue that conversation coming from someone who is a practitioner but is evidence based as a researcher who's in, very much embedded in that? How important will it be to have those conversations even more going forward when more people will be finding information through such as ChatGTP and Google Bard? Okay, so there's lots of issues there. The first one is that this is not a new problem. A wise piece of advice somebody gave me when I started out as a GP about half an NHS ago was to take a look at the middle pages of a particular Sunday newspaper to find out what the doctor column was dealing with because you're bound to have somebody on Monday morning who'd read something in the paper um, and uh, that's what they thought they had. So, so this, this is not a new phenomenon. It's just, the, it's just shape-shifting. The second thing is that central to this is not knowledge. Central to this is trust. And that actually if your information sources say that you should trust them, lead you to trust them rather than your medical professional, then firstly, you're not going to go and see your medical professional about it. Uh, And so again, there's a sort of diversion thing goes on. But the real problem is that in order to trust a medical professional more than some other source of information, there needs to be a reason. It can't just be required, demanded, or told because of authority. It's got trust has to be earned. And I think this is one of the real challenges that we're facing now with the way that NHS primary care is being configured, that it's increasingly seen as a transactional thing, that that it doesn't matter who you see or when you... that As long as it suits you when you see them and that you see them, it doesn't matter who you see. That doesn't build continuity. That doesn't build trust. That doesn't build a sense that, okay, that doctor treated my uncle and treated him well, so, yeah, I'm quite glad I'm seeing her today because, you know, yeah, that's okay. That that we're going to lose that very quickly unless we work out how to engineer that in for uh, at least an important part of our population. And I think that balance between information from all sources and trust with a professional is is going to be absolutely critical uh, to this. And I think it probably applies to professionals in any setting. I'm just more more familiar with it in the general practice one. Chris and Steve, you are both involved in working in the NHS. And like I say, the politics relating to the NHS is a whole podcast in itself. It's a bit of a rabbit hole and um, uh, and we're best not going down it. But some of the research that we do at Shaw relates to issues that do become politicised. And how important is it as academics working in clinical roles to keep that balance between what you experience as professionals and the research you do? I mean, the big value I see in my clinical role is probably twofold. First is being able to see what the problems are firsthand. And secondly, being able to see what is going to be deliverable in terms of actually doing the research. So that certainly is helpful. But in terms of, just sorry, if you could just clarify again the what the concern is. So how important is it for academics? Well, I'd say not important, but how beneficial is it for academics to be working in a clinical role? Well, those would be my, my main benefits. It's not particularly related to politics, I don't think, or any sort of uh, advocacy or anything like that. Is that what you're thinking yeah. about there? Yeah, it's trying to figure out what's that, that balance, because obviously you, you do research. Some yeah. of that research you will lead, and some of it you'll be part of. 
and you're going out into the actual population, you know, one of the comments about one of the criticisms, unfair criticisms that academics get is that they don't seem to be regarded as part of society. They seem to be this group of people that exist in a bubble. And actually you as academics are actually out there impacting. You're carrying out the work that you invariably are involved in the, in the research, which makes you not unique, but it gives you a different perspective, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the research. I mean, clinical research, yes. And I'm, I'm tending to focus more on clinical research these days because it does get you away from some of the uh, more political issues and um, into an area where it is more within your professional remit and more within your day-to-day job. I think I mean, there is an issue about health service research because to what extent is a clinician involved with health service research a subject of that research or of the researcher? And can they be both? Um, and that's something I've never really resolved. And you know, am I, if I'm a clinician involved in health service research, am I actually sort of part of what should be researched there? Um, so I find that more difficult. I'm still not sure if I'm answering your question there, Andy. <laughs> So, so actually, I find I, I see them as very separate parts of what I do. I think that the research occasionally informs my practice, and I think my practice undoubtedly informs my research in terms of my understanding of the context in which what I'm trying to achieve is done. But actually, if I'm thinking about the clinical job in hand, I don't want or my I don't really want my academic head on. I want my patient care head on with its reflexes, its ways of thinking, and and so I very much separate it. And I, I'm aware lots of colleagues will sort of you know suddenly their their university email is no I'm I won't be answering your emails today. I'm, it's a clinical day, and yeah I don't touch my university work when I'm in clinic or vice versa. Um, and for me, actually, I have to keep them, in terms of practicalities, I have to keep them separate. But there are, of course, crossovers. And for me, the important thing then is that if I'm saying, I'm saying this in a clinical setting to a patient, I'm saying this not just as a GP, but actually as somebody who researches this, then I will say, I'll make that transparent, that I'm not giving you kind of standard this is what everybody says. I'm giving you a little bit of something different. Um, but but normally in clinic, I'm Dr. Burton and nobody knows my university job unless I tell them. So I think it's, you know, yeah, I keep them separate as much as possible, but allow them to inform each other. Yeah, I think what Chris has just said is sort of clarified what I was thinking about clinical and health service research. That from the clinical point of view, actually, yes, I do go in and if I... You know, if I'm trying to work out what diagnostic test to do or what treatment to give a patient, then I will think about my research. And oh, could this be a question that we need to be researching? Whereas the health service research, I feel disempowered by that. That when I see a long queue of ambulances outside the emergency department, I don't think, oh, goody, how could I research this to try and solve this problem? Because I know that I'll feel overwhelmed by the whole thing because I've got no control over that. So, yeah, I think I share your sort of view partially Chris mm. but I do feel that the clinical questions I feel yes I'm empowered about that and that's going to I'm going to take that away and use that for my research the health service research questions I I feel disempowered by that and I prefer to view the health service research questions as an outsider how do you envisage and we've we've touched on this briefly but how do you envisage an aging population and the changing demographic is going to impact the NHS in terms of its knowledge needs in the coming years well, um, first of all, I, I have already said about workforce, and again, I'd re-emphasise that. That's going to create a huge challenge there. I might just throw out one controversial <laughs> or potentially provocative opinion here, which is there's a risk that as we get an increasingly older, multi-morbid population, that this sort of rule that we should go where the money is with research and we should focus on the big problems that affect lots of people mean that we focus our research on the older multi-morbid population and we almost neglect the younger people who are suffering more uncommon conditions possibly very severe conditions that we haven't made good medical progress against 
And that strikes me as very inequitous. And I just wonder if sometimes we ought to just remind ourselves that in modern society, most of us will live to a ripe old age in pretty good health. And the people who don't, they're the really unlucky ones. And perhaps we should be, in terms of equity, focusing on the really unlucky ones who are going to be a a minority rather than the majority of us who'd, who'd like to live to 100 but maybe have to accept that living to 80 or 90 is good enough. Again, I think this is a a difficult, it's an awkward situation to start to talk about. I'm going to contrast it with 35 years ago, where there was a much greater expectation that if you lived to a good old age, you were lucky. Cultural, certainly working class cultural memes of only the good die young. There was an acceptance that frailty would be followed by death. Um, And I think society has come to expect, perhaps rightly, healthier lives, but also longer lives in the presence of disability. If we look at the amount of time that people in their final one or two years of life spend in and out of acute hospital care, often gaining very little from it, and often where, if they're allowed to make an informed choice, they would prefer to be looked after in their home rather than in and out of unfamiliar and destabilising hospital settings. I think there's a major problem, not just in what services to deliver, but how we, both as individuals and as a society, have these conversations about ceilings of treatment, about what's an appropriate thing to do rather than just the first thing to do. And and those questions have to not be in terms of rationing, although that's always going to be in the background, but they have to be in terms of personal choice and values and preferences and again unfortunately that takes time and it takes relationships and it takes trust and we know from things a few years ago if you reduce these things to tick box experiences they're just disastrously bad so there are real challenges there i would agree with with those i think the only other thing to add is what i mentioned earlier about multimorbidities particularly people who have physical and mental health problems who are currently very, very siloed between the different organisations that treat mental and physical health problems. The communication between them sometimes is very good, but sometimes it's really not. And the impact that one of those conditions can have on the other and the treatment regimes, the way people want to get involved with their treatment, can get involved in their treatment, they impact on each other hugely. And I think we need better education to understand how those impact on each other particularly in nursing with the branches of nursing you either train as a mental health nurse or as a general nurse or as a children's nurse you or as a learning disability nurse you you don't train with a broad overview so you specialize in mental health which is fantastic it means you've got really really good mental health knowledge but then when your patient also has diabetes and a cardiovascular condition and are starting to show the early signs of dementia on top of their depression diagnosis, that becomes very complicated and you're out of your depth very, very quickly. So I think, yeah, that would be where I'd go. Emily, there's been a lot of pressure on the NHS systems and therefore high stress applied to the workforce. COVID shone a light onto these pressures. They weren't, you know, they didn't appear in, in, in 2020. They were there before, but this has exacerbated it. What were what are we finding out from the research in relation to these pressures now within the NHS? Yeah, I think you're quite right. I think the key thing to remember is that the vast majority of these issues were not invented by the COVID pandemic. They were already around in the NHS. It was just that either they were overlooked or we weren't shouting about them. And they've really come to light particularly, I think, because we started to pay more attention to how much we value the staff who work in the NHS. And then we were looking at actually the conditions that they're working and going, well, if we value these people, why aren't we giving them better working conditions? You know, we want them to look after us when we're at our worst. We should be giving them better so that they can look after us. Because the thing is, most people who go to work in healthcare do so, their primary motivation is, I want to help people. That's why they do it. So if you support your staff, they will, by default, support the patients. Certainly our research has really 
looked at the relationship between workload, the perception of the quality of care that you're able to deliver because of your workload, and then the impact that has on job satisfaction. Because, yeah, all right, everybody's workload is too high. I mean, that's the same in every job, isn't it? Let's face it. But in the health service, if your workload is too high, you're running out of time to look after people and care gets missed or people don't get seen as quickly as they should. And you know that as a clinician, you're sat there going, I haven't done as good a job as I want to do because there aren't enough hours in the day. And therefore, I'm not happy because I haven't done the thing that I came here to do. So that's really going to affect whether people want to stay in the NHS, whether people want to work for it in the first place. So workload is a bit chicken and egg, as Steve was saying earlier about, you know, once you start to not have enough staff, it becomes an unpleasant place to work. People don't want to work there. So then you've got even fewer staff and it just goes around and around. But really investing in making these workplaces places where you want to be will attract more people in and pay is a part of that but it's not the whole situation because when you feel like you are working somewhere where the working conditions are making that dangerous for you for your patients no amount of money is going to make you want to work there so people need to be fairly compensated but actually the working conditions are just as important in my opinion. And I think one of the things that highlighted this was if you talk to staff about the redeployments that happened during COVID. So one of the things that we got was staff who had ever worked anywhere near intensive care, even if that was 30 years ago, they were pulled away from their current job and put onto the intensive care ward because we needed as many intensive care staff as we could get. Now, there were very good reasons for doing it, but intensive care 30 years ago looks nothing like intensive care now. So a lot of these staff felt out of their depth. They didn't feel properly supported. They weren't sure what they were doing. They were afraid to go to work because they they weren't sure. And that uncertainty, that feeling unsupported, being left to get on with something that you don't feel comfortable or confident doing, that increases people's stress. And I've spoken to lots of staff who literally considered leaving the NHS because they were put in that position. And that's no good for anybody because at that point you could have a really good nurse, really confident, really well-trained, really experienced, and then you take them and work, put them in a different department and then they want to leave well, who's that helping? Absolutely nobody. So I think looking at the way redeployment is is worked, it's difficult in an emergency. Sometimes things have to happen. But there's ways you can do that better and there's ways you can do that worse. And different trusts did it differently. And some places were great and some places were really supportive, gave people training, gave people support, clinical supervision, and other places didn't. And you can see the difference in the the stress levels of the staff. You can see the difference in the retention levels in the hospital. You can see people wanting to move, applying for other jobs. And that could have been avoided if it hadn't been done in quite such a panic. Because there's a difference between doing something in an emergency and doing it rapidly. And there's a difference between doing it in a panic. And... You can, even in an emergency, you can still offer people support. You can still make sure they've got clinical supervision. You can still make sure they are properly trained and comfortable and confident in the work that they're doing. And this this relates now as well. You know, we're, we're past that situation. That's not happening anymore. But it still happens in certain places. So we've been talking to mental health staff who are saying, you know, they're employed to work on an older adult ward. They come in in the morning. The ward for acutely ill adults with mental health problems are short-staffed, so they have to move. They don't get given a choice about it, but this is a completely different patient group. They have completely different health conditions. You know, if you're used to working with someone with dementia and all of a sudden today you're working with 
somebody with a personality disorder, that's a completely different condition. It needs to be managed in a completely different way. People need to be engaged with in a completely different way. It's a completely different skill set. You need to acknowledge that. You need to provide people with support. You need to provide people with training if you're going to redeploy them. And this is there's a lot of places where this isn't happening. So I think, as I said, COVID shone a light on issues like redeployment, but it's not a COVID issue per se. It's happening in lots of different places for lots of different reasons, predominantly because, and I know you didn't want this to get political, but I'm going to put a political note into it, that staffing hasn't been properly funded or properly strategically managed for a very long time. And this has meant that we have staff shortages in certain places where that could have been avoided with long-term planning, and that didn't happen. Unfortunately, now the staff are currently paying for that. Um, It can be changed again, but it's going to need investment. At least we now have a strategy, we have a long-term plan, but that's going to require a huge amount of investment to go alongside it. And whether or not that happens... We'll have to wait for the next budget to find out. And what can research do? Because obviously research informs policy. That becomes that becomes practice. Briefly, what research is being undertaken and can go into practice. Carrying out qualitative research and other forms, we, we can get an idea. We know how we know it's bad. But obviously policymakers want to know how bad so that they can make decisions. How What's happening in that area? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of research happening here at the University of Sheffield, but also across the country and across the world in healthcare workforce issues is a global issue. It's it's not a British issue. So, you know, this research is happening everywhere. And there's a lot going on here in Sheffield. We're looking um, a whole variety of different workforce research, including retention issues. We're looking at the implementation of new roles, which there was an article in the BMJ this week about physician associates so there's lots of research going on but we need to communicate that it comes back to what we were talking about before about the way we communicate research and how we get that research into the hands of the people who can actually make those decisions I've just had a conversation with somebody from NHS employers this week we were talking about the recommendations that have come from the retention research well I've got a list of recommendations probably stretches to about five or six pages, just list of recommendations, five or six pages. And he's asked me to condense that down into seven recommendations at an absolute maximum because he can't get anything longer than that read by the the people who need to read it. So it's about finding out what people's priorities are and getting that information to the right people at the right time. Finally, what role do you think research and innovation will play in the shaping of the future of the NHS. I'm thinking of those next 25 years, which is very tricky, but cast your crystal ball. What do you think? First thing I'd say is if we knew that, we wouldn't need to do the research. That's one of the joys of our research, is it? Well, you should set out on it not knowing what you're going to find. And I'm always suspicious of people who say the research will show that we are going to revolutionise the NHS with the use of AI. How do we know? need to do the research and that will tell us whether we're going to revolutionise the NHS through the use of NI. In terms of what I'd like to see, which is not quite your question Andy, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit if that's okay. I'd like to see research that gives clinicians less to do and makes our lives easier and I, I just reflect on it, it seems like every day I wake up, turn the Today programme on and there's something Uh, a bit of research about how badly we're doing or how we're letting some group of patients down, we've got to try harder, or there's new innovation that's going to require extra huge amounts of money and patients having to come in every two weeks to have an infusion to stop them getting dementia. And some of these things are great, some of them are not so great, um, but it would be great to just wake up one morning and say, actually, we've we've managed to cure something or sort something out, or we just worked out this is a waste of everyone's time and we're not going to do it anymore. So a bit of research that just made clinicians and patients lives easier and gave the NHS something less to do rather than more to do would be very welcome. Yeah I think that element of surprise is always going to be there. I think that most research and innovation will be kind of small incremental steps forward tweaking something a little bit 
trying a slightly different drug combination or whatever. And that's necessary, but it it isn't going to transform anything. And I think there will be some things that we discover that do change the way we think about particular illnesses. I'm not placing any bets on where. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at the changes in cancer treatments with personalised treatments with immunotherapy, then basically stuff had been, progress had been pretty much stuck for 20 years with just more toxic chemo on more toxic chemo. And and suddenly the, the genomic stuff led to changes in the way we think about this. Now, whether they're affordable and sustainable going forward, not a different question. But but new forms of information come along and have impacts that we don't foresee until they happen. So actually, this part of research is about keeping your eyes firmly focused on the very small bit in front of you because that's where you're specifically making progress. But the other part is kind of looking up and looking around sometimes and getting a sense of where are the real changes happening and and then when they seem to be happening, how do we harness them? And I think one of the things that COVID taught us is that actually there's a lot of smart people in this game and when big changes happen, actually they do look fast, think fast, move fast to sort of harness opportunities. So, yeah, most of it's going to be grindness log and conflicting information and things, but but there are going to be breakthroughs as well as small steps. Yeah, I mean, I would echo some of that, as particularly what Steve said around workforce research. I think looking at the way staff work, innovative working practices are going to be essential. We Staff are already overloaded. We've talked about the fact that the demands are only going to get higher. That's not sustainable. So we need to think differently about the way that we work um, without putting extra pressure on people. So this isn't about the staff we have or just doing more work. That's not going to. That's not going to go down. That's you know, people are just going to leave. We need to do things better and more efficiently and to free up staff from some of the inefficient work that they are currently doing like paperwork when you talk to staff is always the thing that comes up paperwork's hugely important there needs to be a paper trail people need to have records that needs to, we need to know what's been done but if somebody is spending three quarters of their shift doing paperwork when they're supposed to be looking after patients that's not okay something has gone horribly wrong there so, you know, who's filling in the can we Can somebody else fill in the paperwork? Could administrative staff do things? Does it have to be a clinician? There are different ways we, could, we can organise some of this that is potentially quite concerning to some people because, you know, the notes that you write are, of course, your, your registration with the um, medical council or the nurses council are, you know, potentially at risk if you haven't documented something properly. Um, but it, we can't have people just spending an entire, spending hours and hours a day when they're supposed to be looking after patients sat in an office doing paperwork. Could technology solve that? Speech recognition technology? Because, yes, I, I agree. I, I, now, I look back fondly to when I could use paper and pen because it's so much quicker than having to log on to the incredibly slow IT system and then use my one-finger typing to write the patient notes up. But surely we're not that far away from technology where I would simply have you know, some bit of technical equipment, a headset or something. I just say, uh, patient in bed for um, large spleen, you know, needs blood, whatever, whatever needs doing. And then it's in, immediately recorded, deciphered, put onto an electronic system somewhere. And suddenly all that note taking, things like prescribing drugs used to be so much quicker when I could write it down. Slow now that I have to do it online, but it could be quick again if I just said penicillin one gram four times a day intravenously, bang, it's done. Could that be a solution? Well, I think the technology is there, but it goes back to the thing around, I suppose, infrastructure and due diligence, information governance, isn't it? Because lots of the technologies that are doing this are the third-party organisations, and there's a lot we can do in research around this, but again, that's... that's so maybe my wistfulness about paper will look as misplaced in the future as wistfulness about when we used acetates for our 
Because there was a while when PowerPoint was incredibly annoying, wasn't it? When it never worked. And you always had to you know, take your acetates with you in case PowerPoint failed. But now, you know, we've got it sorted. Maybe um, that's the brighter future we can look forward to. But it's only about two years ago since there was an OHP projector in the lecture room next door to us. So old technologies do hang around, don't they? And sometimes with good reason. So I want to thank you all for your time today. Thank you for taking time out. I know you're all really very busy people, but thank you. And I know this is a tricky subject, but thank you so much for your time.